Hi, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Defense Deconstructed on the CGAI Podcast Network. I'm your host and president of the Canadian Global Affairs Institute, Dave Perry. On today's show, which we're recording January 27th, 2023, you'll hear the second part of the panel on non-traditional security challenges in the Indo-Pacific, featuring Kyoko Kawara, Charles Burton, Malcolm Davis, and moderated by our own Charlotte Duval-Antoine. This discussion took place during our conference on peace and stability in the Indo-Pacific. Defense Deconstructed is brought to you by Davy Shipyard. Founded in 1825, Davy is a premier builder of advanced specialized icebreakers and many other ships for the government of Canada and the private sector. As Canada's longest established, largest and highest capacity shipbuilder, Davy has delivered many of the most pioneering vessels ever built in Canada. Davy generates thousands of good jobs and billions of dollars for Canada's economy. Through its work, Davy is helping to build a sustainable marine industry, combat climate change, defend sovereignty, support trade, generate exports, and unleash the potential of the communities it serves. Malcolm, I'll turn to you. Um, we, we see that Australia has a very much holistic approach to its defense and security. So how has Australia seen that issue of political interference and, and disinformation in its country? And how, how pervasive has it been uh, from your neck of the woods? Look, I think it has been quite pervasive in the sense that we have seen uh, China directly involved in our society uh, through eth uh, ethnic Chinese Australian groups, through chi local Chinese media, through business, through education, uh, whereby they're trying to influence uh, the political discussion and, and debate in this country in a manner that suits their agenda. Uh, and you know, th they are quite open about it. Um, and uh, their goal ultimately is to get Australia to essentially turn away from its traditional allies and, and accommodate a rising China. Uh, we've become a vassal to Beijing. Now, they're not going to succeed, but, but we do face this ongoing challenge that I think will increase in time, whereby they can use a variety of forms of pressure, political, economic, diplomatic, um, uh, lawfare, uh, commercial and other, other such areas uh, to put pressure on us. When we um, uh, had the temerity to actually ask for an international inquiry as to the origin of COVID, uh, one of the first things that they did was slap trade sanctions on us to try and uh, penalise us for challenging um, their interests. And that has only grown over time. So we have to balance uh, our traditional approach to defence and national security, uh, which focuses very much on building up the Australian Defence Force and uh, to be able to fight future wars, including uh, potentially with China over Taiwan. Uh, we have to balance that capability against an internal challenge of a growing Chinese influence their ability to utilise local Chinese populations or to pressure local Chinese populations to act against us because you know many ethnic Chinese Australians um, have family back in mainland China which can be used as a means for coercing uh, Chinese people here in Australia. Uh, media is another area. Uh, the business community is I think is potentially uh, vulnerable to Chinese pressure and of course the higher education sector. Uh, Aspie released a, an important report some years back called Picking Flowers to Make Honey by um, um, Alex Josky, where he identified uh, 
that China had placed around about 200 active duty PLA officers in the senior colonel level rank within Australian universities. These were undeclared PLA officers who were active duty, came into Australia, undertook high-level research, postdoctoral research in areas of, of, of science and education, uh, science and, and physics and so forth, which had military relevance. So things like artificial intelligence, uh, computing, uh, autonomous systems, missile technologies, so forth, and were taking the information that they gained from that research in Australian universities back to China to help enhance the PLA. Now, we've cracked down on that uh, as a result of that ASPE report, but there's still a challenge within the Australian higher education sector in terms of getting universities to be aware of or even care about the fact that uh, China is trying to exploit access uh, to our higher education sector to benefit its military and to enhance its military capability so that one day the research that those PLA officers were doing in Australian universities could go towards in a future war killing Australians. So I think that you know we need to be very cautious and very aware of what China is doing in that regard because it is very serious. They're not, they're not you know sort of playing a limited strategy here. Uh, they are determined to be the dominant power in the Indo-Pacific region, and essentially they're using all national means of, at their disposal to achieve that. Thanks, Malcolm. Charles, I'll, I'll turn to you and, and look at what China is doing in Canada and what measures Canada is taking against it. And if there is more to do, what can we do more? And I'm assuming that you're going to say that we can do a lot more. <laughs> Yeah, I just uh, picking up on Alex Josky. Um, this is a boy genius out of. He was he was the Australian Strategic Policy Institute. He's now independent. He wrote a book recently called Spies and Lies, which I urge everybody to rush out and get a copy. But I think about 2017, you know, I was at a conference in Prague. It was the first time I met Alex, and he showed me the data for the book that uh, Malcolm was referring to about, uh, or they're picking flowers and reaping honey or something. And uh, Canada was number three in terms of penetration by the PLA officers working in Canadian institutions as graduate students or, or researchers. Um, but of course, you know, after the UK and US, but of course, in relation to our population, Canada was by far the most penetrated by uh, these PLA people. So, you know, and then, uh, then he told me that he had to get back to, I think it was Canberra because he had to write his fourth year exams. So he is one, uh, you know, more accomplished than old people like me uh, in, you know, as a teenager. Um, I think with regard to disinformation, I really see it as having a three, the Chinese Communist Party having a three-part strategy. Of course, the first part is their domestic propaganda, which is about, uh, you know, how everything about the West is bad, how the Ukraine action is entirely due to... Um, but uh, NATO exceeding itself, how uh, China has been much more successful in preventing death from COVID-19 than any other country. And, and some of the stuff like just, I mean, it was only a couple of weeks ago that, you know, China was reporting over a, a five-day period, I think, three deaths from COVID-19, whereas the British were saying it was um, uh, 9,000 a day. Certainly a big gap between three and 9,000. But, you know, from the point of view of people in China, they know that there was a serious problem of death from COVID-19, 
and yet their propaganda was like so completely at odds with the very apparent reality on the ground. Um, so that's number one is the domestic propaganda. Number two is the propaganda in the Chinese language directed towards um, ethnic Chinese in, in Canada. And I think that the Chinese authorities believe that Chinese the kind of code and outsiders couldn't possibly understand it. But I, I can read Chinese uh, pretty well. And, you know, this is really about how Western society is a racist, white supremacist society biased against uh, all Chinese and that therefore people of Chinese ethnicity, even multiple generations and even, believe it or not, those uh, cute Chinese girls that, that some Canadian families have adopted should all be loyal to the motherland and that your citizenship doesn't matter. That, you know, if you're a descendant of the Yellow Emperor, you are part of China as represented by the Chinese Communist Party. And so this is particularly damaging because, of course, it it does um, pressure people to uh, collaborate in espionage and reporting. Um, I've been subject to some bad experiences of arrest in China as a result of information provided by the Confucius Institute uh, at Brock University. Um, and it also, uh, um, uh, you know, makes people feel disloyal towards Canada and, and has also been directed at Canadian political candidates of Chinese ethnic origin who are not uh, supportive of the purposes of the Chinese Communist Party in Canada. So this is very dangerous and subversive stuff. I think the third level is the Chinese propaganda uh, articulated often by um, persons of ethnic Chinese origin, even people who have positions within Canadian Parliament, that the rise of China is inevitable, that uh, our only choice to maintain our Canadian prosperity and world peace is to collaborate with China's political demands. And, um, you know, it's, uh, I think there even was a retired Canadian cabinet minister who asked about China said, well, if you can't beat them, join them. And that the US is in decline, China's inevitably on the rise, and that Canada would be foolish um, to uh, alienate uh, China as a, as a rising future superpower and that Chinese um, norms, civilizational norms, uh, while they are incompatible with liberal democracy, are actually better. So, you know, I, I see this as a three-pronged approach, and I think it's quite effective. What can we do about it? I mean, you know, people have come up with ideas like we shouldn't allow the WeChat app to operate in Canada. Well, I mean, you know, I'm on WeChat all day, every day on a separate phone. I couldn't possibly communicate with anybody in China if I didn't have WeChat, or that we should ban uh, Chinese TV from being broadcast in Canada. There again, um, oh, very well, but I get my Chinese TV via a Chinese internet service. You, you know, you can't actually stop the flow of, of Chinese um, propaganda, including, you know, depictions of Westerners who are giving uh, confessions under torture and so on that are objected to. So. How you challenge this really has to be raising awareness in the Chinese community or among um, Canadians. I think that, you know, our newspapers like the Globe and Mail and the National Post and even the Toronto Star have been quite effective in, um, in challenging uh, uh, China's propaganda line. I, I was uh, subject to lawfare um, with regard to my uh, little article entitled The Murky World of Chinese Influence in 2015, along with the publisher of the Globe and Mail, the editor of the Globe and Mail, 
and a reporter called Craig Offman. Oh, and Globe and Mail Inc. Fortunately, it doesn't seem to have made a damn bit of difference. You know, since 2000 and 2015, when I was when I was uh, subject to the to the lawfare, um, I probably published I don't know 50 more similar things. I I don't my my opinion pieces tend to be rather repetitive, but the same thing over and over again. The newspapers have not given in to the pressure of the increase in their libel insurance, which is the impact of of this kind of lawfare. So you know, I, I think that. In terms of how we deal with the Canadian Chinese community, it's very, very challenging. There are obviously other sources of information outside of um, Chinese communist-controlled discourse. I mean, the Chinese, except for the Falun Gong newspapers, you know, the Epoch Times and uh, the Chinese version of the New York Times, there's really nothing in Chinese which is not under the control of pro-Chinese impact. I mean, there's just no newspaper left. How do you get people to not read the stuff that they're familiar with? You know, how do you get them not to read the WeChat news? They they prefer it. You know, I don't I don't know a single Chinese person who reads the New York Times in Chinese. They all read the the stuff that's prepared for them by you know mainland uh, mainland sources or mainland associated sources. So I think we really have a we really face a challenge here. But uh, let me just uh, before uh, you know you tell me how negative I am. Uh, <laughs> let's bear in mind that. Nearly all the people of Chinese origin in Canada are loyal to Canada. You know, it's not like it's not like the way it's depicted by the Chinese government that they're all, you know, children of the of the Yellow Emperor and and you know not able to be part of our society. That is just not factually correct. But there is a significant element that is under the influence of China, as Dick Fadden, you know, talked about way back in 2010 that we're really having a lot of trouble with. And it, it is threatening our, our, our Canadian values and security. There's no question about it. And, and we really have to put a lot more resources into trying to um, deal with this. And so far, th there is no political will. Because anything that you do, anything government does that targets China is seen as racist against all Chinese people. And so it really constrains the politicians who believe that if they do anything like that, that they will lose uh, seats in parts of Canada that have large ethnic Chinese communities. Yeah, so there is a requirement for a little bit more risk taking, uh, I assume. I, I will stay with you, Charles, uh, because the other side of, of that interference is, is also economic uh, influences and, and the power of China in, in the world's economy. And you, you mentioned in your opening remarks the, the Bell and Road Initiative. And uh, once again, I want to bring us back to, to the countermeasure aspect of it all, because I, I do want us to think about how we can approach those problems and uh, beyond the Indo-Pacific strategy and what, what actual measures we can take. So in, in Canada, we're talking a lot about uh, diversifying our trade and our economic partners, but, but the Belt and Road Initiative is actually going way beyond uh, just that diversifying uh, trade. So, so I want you to to think or maybe offer us some thoughts about particular ways that Canada could leverage its partnership all across the world, uh, not only in the, in the Indo-Pacific, but I think that Africa and Latin America are going to be very important piece to that, uh, to counter the effects of, of the BRI or any other forms of um, economic interference that China may pursue. I mean, it's very challenging. Um, I did do a study of uh, China's um, uh, 
Belt and Road and Influence Activities in West Africa. And you do see that in places that have like strategic locations, you know, that have African countries that have ports that would be very promising for Chinese uh, naval installations, that they are getting a lot of money from the Belt and Road. And when they when that money ends up in a Swiss bank account or something, in other words, they can't pay back loans, China has been very forgiving of those countries because I think they're thinking once we get control of the ports, then, you know, we'll ask them if they'll take our submarines. It, it's it's there's no there's no distinction, as I was saying before, between economic investment to generate profit for for the Chinese state or to use their their surpluses to 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 sell them into Africa and the desire to improve China's strategic position. So, you know, you have the situation where countries that have been the beneficiaries of Belt and Road investment and hope to have sustaining Belt and Road investment will support China and the UN. You know, we can get like 40 countries to say that China is committing genocide in uh, in in the Uyghur regions and China can rally 80 countries, including uh, countries in the Muslim Arab world who say that China's policies uh, in that region are exemplary. So, you know, we, we're facing a, an uphill battle. Um, the Chinese, of course, Belt and Road uh, does not have the same um, checks as, say, the World Bank or Asian Development Bank with regard to the feasibility of projects or the, uh, or the um, monitoring of the, uh, of the use of the investment to ensure that it's going to project purposes and not to other purposes or environmental concerns or you know all these other things that that modern international loan tend to include and so there it's much more attractive than the western money there's a lot more of it and you know the united states has talked about how we should all get together and come up with some uh, alternative funds that would be attractive to uh, countries in the third world that would disincentive them from taking the the Belt and Road money and thereby becoming beholden to China geostrategically. I mean, you know, we're not giving that. Like, it's like Dick Fadden was saying: when under conditions of economic stress, are we going to be handing over a huge amount of Canadian taxpayers' money to support the building of infrastructure and other necessary projects in the third world? There's, we have no means to challenge China uh, with the Belt and Road. And and I, I frankly I'm well I guess I'm a bit of a downer again but I'm just not seeing any any means for us to to stop this freight train of China being able to achieve a massive number of of allies and possible um, military partners in uh, parts of the world outside of Europe and uh, and North America. Sobering again. Um, and maybe my, Japan and Taiwan, yeah. possibly South Korea. This episode of Defense Deconstructed is brought to you by Irving Shipbuilding. Canada's national shipbuilder is currently hiring. For more information on the many jobs and opportunities currently available, please visit www.shipsforcanada.ca slash careers. Uh, Malcolm, I'll turn to you because um, uh, Australia has faced a quite significant um, I would not call it attacks, but demands from China that in in economic coercion from from China, um, especially uh, in 2020 at the beginning of the the pandemic, uh, has Australia done anything uh, to to counter eco economic coercion 
find new partnerships or, or increase its own resilience to, to counter that issue? Yes, we have in the sense that we are setting about diversifying our supply chains, diversifying our markets. We realised that actually it was a huge mistake on our part to become solely dependent on China in terms of trade because uh, uh, that gave them a weapon that they could use against us. Uh, so I think that we are taking steps in that regard to to try and uh, create new markets out there for our our you know sort of various different exports, which are you know vital to our economy. At the same time, we're also recognising that sovereign capability and sovereign uh, production is is really important, particularly in the high technology sector. And obviously, as a space policy analyst, I talk a lot about space, and we're doing a lot there. But uh, in terms of other areas, we're we're investing in a in new um, investment in uh, science and technology, uh, robotics, autonomous systems, those sorts of things. So we're becoming, there's some things we can't stop relying on China for, um, but we're trying our very best to minimise our dependency on China and expand our opportunities to have new markets. Uh, and I think that most countries, I think, or, or that are aware of what China is doing is trying to do, are trying to do the same things. And I think this is a good step um, because the, the worst thing we could do would be to try and essentially turn back the clock uh, to 2014, 2013, when we were quite happy to essentially sell the farm to Beijing in return for favourable trading relations. Yes, we had a wave of prosperity as a result, but then we paid the price politically and strategically down the track. So I think that uh, we are taking, we are very cognizant of the fact that China does use um, trade uh, and investment as a weapon. Uh, and the the list of demands, the grievances that I talked about earlier, earlier and you just mentioned, um, highlighted that to us. That essentially, uh, you know, Beijing expected us to see to these 14 demands, which would have meant uh, essentially curtailing, uh, curtailing our freedom of speech, freedom of press, um, uh, shutting down groups that were opposed to China, uh, essentially accommodating China's interests in the South China Sea. Uh, recognizing, recognizing China's claim to Taiwan, uh, they even wanted to shut ASPE down. That was one of their demands that, you know, if we'd, if we'd bowed to Chinese wishes, I wouldn't be in a job now because ASPE would have been shut down on the demand of the Chinese government. So I think that, you know, we are very cognizant of what China's doing now. I don't see us ever going back to the days of essentially um, accommodating China's every whim uh, in return for good trading relations. We know what China is about, and we're going in in a way that I think, uh, as the current government is saying, we trade and, 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 and negotiate with them when it's in our interest to do so, but we do so with open eyes, and we recognise that there are some issues where we have to disagree and push back against China uh, and protect our interests. And I think that's our policy going forward. Kyoko, uh, what about the Japanese experience on all of this? Uh, and I would expand that a little bit because I I don't want uh, to, to take the risk of hearing, uh, well, there's the Galapagos effect and, and Japan has been quite protected from all of this. But but I want to know also where the economic peace um, and economic partnerships also fit within the free and open Indo-Pacific concept um, and, and how can we offer countermeasures uh, to 
to that hold that China may have on a lot of countries in terms of economic. Well, thank you. Um, uh, let's talk a little bit about uh, Japan's newly uh, or reversed version of the national security strategy. I, although I mentioned that uh, one of the most important updates um, of the national security strategy was um, uh, they added uh, cognitive domain in their own uh, security perception, conventional security perception. But in addition to the uh, co cognitive domain, uh, they also added um, economic security uh, because maybe I would say that in uh, maybe with uh, some uh, security, um, economic security, how would say like insecurity mm -hmm. uh, is um, in, in their mind. So we are planning to uh, expand more, you know, supply chain, for instance. Also, in terms of, um, as Charles mentioned, that the Belt and Road Initiative conducted by China. Um, let's, if I, if we look at, the, for instance, some part of um, uh, Southeast Asia, uh, Japan, a uh, Japanese Minister of Foreign Affairs, um, has, um, conducts some uh, public opinion poll also in uh, Southeast Asia, uh, some ASEAN countries, maybe every two years or something. And last year, uh, we had a, a result that the, the percentage that answered China is now and will be the most important uh, partner in the Indo-Pacific region surpassed or exceeded the person that answered Japan, Japan is now the, uh, the most important partner in the region and will um, be the most important partner in the, in the Pacific. So the answer that um, uh, China will and still is uh, the most important allies and uh, partners in, in the Pacific exceeded the, the, the Japan. So here, like um, maybe it was um, maybe the first time uh, over the five years or maybe more. So uh, here we cannot trust like let's say reliability uh we we i would say reliability doesn't match the um partnership so uh here let's say uh mr davis um just talk about some issues that uh china's uh, coercion uh foreign policy uh what we call um wolf warrior diplomacy uh since the the pandemic started and and he he also mentioned that um, uh, the they were quite counterproductive. I I totally I 100% agree with that. But here, uh, for instance, um, in uh, some part of the maybe let's say uh, some part of the African country or in the, uh, some countries in the East East Asia. Um, also, I might also agree with the, the um, Wolf Warrior diplomacy had a counterproductive impact on them. But at the same time, they uh, we have to take care of uh, take care of or, or look at the, the results that they are still or more consider um, China will be or is. Uh, most important partner in the Indo-Pacific region, maybe because of the uh, e economic cohesion, or I would say um, economic, not cohesion, but uh, partnership 
with China. So maybe quite uh, economy is quite, uh, I would say, the uh, quite strong impact on the uh, security, also uh, foreign policy. So we have to uh, very much take care of um, uh, public diplomacy as well as strategic communication to the third country um, from the uh, economic security point of view. This is my opinion. Very nice. Um, now I want to I want to expand actually on, on one of the things that that you mentioned is partnerships. Uh, we the Indo-Pacific region is is very vast and, and there's a lot of fora that that um, Japan, Australia, and Canada participate in, and and that we can actually expand upon to to create and to pursue a safer and in a more open and free Indo-Pacific, to, to use the, the Japanese terms. Um, and Malcolm, uh, I'll start with you because uh, Australia is part of some of the most influential and consequential um, security arrangements in the region, uh, notably AUKUS and, and the Quad. And I wanted to hear a little bit your perspective as a, um, a scholar of an insider nation on those security arrangements uh, in the regions. Are there, what are the opportunities on the non-traditional security side? Uh, you mentioned space, but we know that that AUKUS has quantum AI and, and cyber arrangements and, and the Quad has also a non-traditional security component. Uh, so how is it, how are those arrangements working? Are there um, thoughts of expanding and creating new structures that, that copy them includes other partner, how is Australia looking about deepening and expanding those, those types of arrangements? Well, thanks, yeah, AUKUS obviously is a technology sharing agreement. It's not a defense alliance. So that's the first thing. Uh, second thing is that there's two pathways in AUKUS. The first pathway is obviously focused on uh, acquisition of nuclear powered and propelled submarines for the Royal Australian Navy. And the key focus there is how do we essentially get that capability within a reasonable time frame? At the moment, um, all the indications are that the earliest we could get the subs is the late 2030s, which, given the rapid strategic deterioration in our environment, is completely you know, way too late. So there's an urgent effort in that regard to try and uh, bring that forward. The second pathway, as you mentioned, is a range of high technology areas, so artificial intelligence, autonomous systems, hypersonics, uh, quantum technologies, cyber, uh, electronic warfare, and um, uh, advanced undersea warfare capabilities. Uh, those um, research areas are carrying forward in terms of discussions between the Australians, the Americans, and the British uh, in terms of how we can pursue those capabilities. And I think the goal there is to have some deliverable capabilities within the next three to five years rather than having necessarily a long-term plan because uh, these capabilities are recognized as essential for us to uh, maintain a military advantage in, in the next conflict. Um, would we expand AUKUS in terms of focus? Potentially. Uh, I mean, it was always strange to me that space was not included as one of the uh, focus areas for AUKUS. Uh, but that's something that I think that that could be looked at down the track. I think there is a risk, though, that if we expand the focus areas too much, uh, we end up losing our ability to make progress because essentially we're trying to achieve too much in too many areas. So we'll be careful in that regard. 
Could we expand AUKUS to include other members? There's already been some discussion in that regard uh, in terms of Japan joining AUKUS. Japan has expressed an interest in, in doing so. Um, not so much in terms of, I think, acquisition of nuclear-powered submarines, but in the high technology uh, areas uh, that I mentioned earlier. Uh, I think the other area where there would be real potential for AUKUS to expand expand its, its membership would be in strike. And this is a key area for AUKUS in terms of developing new long-range strike capabilities. Um, Australia is very cognizant of the fact that we have a, a gap in capability for long-range strike. So we're now rushing to try and close that gap. Uh, I think Japan too is interested in having a uh, a counter response capability to threats from both China and North Korea. Uh, and so, and obviously America and the UK have that interest as well. So I think there's a common ground there in terms of uh, developing some sort of collaboration on strike within AUKUS if Japan were to be brought in in that regard. Other members that potentially could be considered, South Korea, India, um, I think are possibilities, but we'd have to carefully manage it to the point so that we don't end up with this sort of conglomeration of states trying to do everything and in the end achieves nothing. So a, a focused approach for AUKUS, I think, is, is important. Obviously, the Quad is important as well in terms of India uh, and uh, Japan working with Australia and the United States. Uh, uh, and I think that um, there's also the Quad Plus, which brings it, which brings in consultations with other states as well, notably South Korea and a few others. Uh, so I think that you know there's a range of, uh, of quadrilateral, trilateral, multilateral arrangements that are starting to emerge. Uh, discussion for uh, mini minilateral arrangements that I think are very positive, uh, that are enabling us to do new things that we couldn't do before. Uh, and I think AUKUS is probably at the lead there. And uh, as I said, uh, it's those uh, high technology areas and the strike component that I think are the, are the ones that will deliver first with the uh, nuclear-powered submarines uh, as a challenge for the longer term. Thank you. Thanks, Malcolm. Uh, Kyoko, I'll, I'll turn to you um, because in your opening remarks and several times uh, when we were talking, you, you mentioned the, the G7 as an opportunity for uh, deepening some, some collaboration aspects in all of this. But I also want to you to, to go a little bit beyond that, because uh, right now the, the way that I'm asking you questions to, to all of you is actually very focused at the state level. But we also know that dealing with some non-security threats, especially at the disinformation and political interference level, would be people-to-people -people ties and, and not necessarily uh, defense, uh, military officers exchanges or serving in staff colleges or having them serve on, on ships of different nations, but also promoting um, cross-migration, let's say, and uh, of, of students and uh, young professionals and, and trips from um, the public service uh, to, to really learn from one another and, and share culture and share language knowledge, et cetera. So I want you to, to talk a little bit more about those types of partnerships that happen not only at the high level with the G7 being a great opportunity, especially this year for Japan, but also how uh, would you see those happening more at the individual to individual level. 
thank you. Um, thank you, Charlotte. Uh, in terms of people-to-people -people interaction and also cooperation between, um, let's, let's say, bilateral cooperation or something, um, if I talk about myself, I'm here as a, a visiting fellow at the uh, MLI, and I, I, I have heard or realized that I am the only Japanese researcher here in Ottawa. Uh, uh, although uh, Japan and also uh, Canada uh, is a member, uh, uh, we are the member of the um, G7. G7. Um, but uh, in terms of the, you know, researchers ex exchange also people-to-people -people interaction or maybe conducting some um, re joint researches among, uh, let's say, not only the G7 partners, but also, let's say, maybe uh, NATO's uh, partners, for instance, also um, it could be done, it could be done by um, Quad frameworks or maybe other uh, bilateral frameworks. It's um, very essential because, if uh, of course, government to government uh, traditional uh, diplomacy also security talk is uh, very much important. But let's say um, this information issue is uh, quite new and I would say brand new, and nobody has taken like 100% uh, successful. Uh, countermeasures against this information. So uh, here, maybe researchers and also uh, academia should be more bridged um, and uh, conduct um, the joint researches and also joint co uh, conferences as much as uh, as many as possible. Because tra sometimes track 1.0 is, uh, if I talk about the hurdle, like. A, is a bit like you know difficult to achieve. So maybe like let's say track 1.5 or 2.0 could be uh, more uh, much easier to to be done by um, for for us also any other researchers also people-to-people uh, -people interaction or people-to-people -people, um, in-person cooperation uh, is very much essential. Uh, uh, in this era, um, particular era, if I, if we think of a Russian-Ukraine war, and at the time of the Russian-Ukraine war, still people-to-people -people interaction is very much important. And if I, uh, if we think of soft, soft power-related uh, activities, diplomacy. So yeah. Um, um, let's say first we have to uh, we should or it is better for us to conduct uh, or more bridged between among um, research uh, foreign researchers and uh, maybe hopefully in the future in in the new, near future we could be done it could be done by the track 1.5 or yeah. So Charles, um, Canada has some footprint in in the region in the indo-pacific but um what can we do to deepen those ties especially on the on the non-traditional security front are there uh some kinds of partnership that we should leverage or create new, new structures what especially considering that the indo-pacific um, strategy is looking at implementing a whole society uh approach to to the problem what are the opportunities there for canada or even as I know you'd like uh, to to be a donor a little bit, what are the, some of the challenges there? Sorry, uh, to be a donor. Yeah, uh, yeah, of course, um, again. 
But uh, no, I mean, I think there are a lot of things that we that we can do that does, doesn't immediately cost a lot of money. Of course, you know, preventing Western technology from being co-opted for China's weapons development, surveillance and espionage programs, that's, you know, it doesn't cost anything to to collaborate with our allies in, in that regard. We already banned uh, Huawei from Canada's 5G networks. There's a new report by Charles Parton, a, a man whose name is very similar to myself, that I often get credited for uh, his uh, accomplishments. But he's just produced a very interesting report on the Internet of Things, which suggests that you know banning the 5G technology or ZTE and Huawei is not enough because you know our, our refrigerators and and uh, and um, transportation systems and all this stuff that is going to be using this amazing 5G technology, albeit not Huawei, uh, is still uh, capable of providing a, a treasure trove of strategic information to the Chinese state. Um, and there's lots of evidence that that could happen. So I mean, you know, that's the kind of thing that we would have to take seriously and engage in legislation and cooperate with our allies and come up with alternatives that would prevent this disaster from occurring. I think, um, I mean, the main problem, and, and uh, Dick again referred to it this morning, is uh, how to get people who have the language and cultural expertise so that we can genuinely enhance trusting and reciprocal arrangements with countries in the region, like, you know, how many people uh, in the Foreign Service speak Japanese or, or uh, Korean or Chinese? Uh, you know, the, the ones we have, you know, some excellent, primarily women in, in global affairs, uh, Rachel Bennington, Sarah Taylor, Julia Bentley, now retired, um, and some others who had the experience of study in China um, and uh, have high level uh, Chinese language skills. But what talented young person today would willingly send themselves to the People's Republic of China for four years to live, uh, well, I mean, the Chinese won't even allow you to live in the same dormitory with the Chinese guys anymore. And so we really need to be providing a, a significant incentive to talented young people to develop this kind of expertise. And so far, we're not. And in fact, even in absolute numbers, the numbers of Canadians studying Mandarin in absolute numbers has gone down. You would have thought with the importance of China that we should be enhancing our numbers. Uh, Koreans gone up, people love K-pop, but um, Chinese, uh, nobody wants to, to be there anymore. So, you know, this really requires government action to, to address a very serious problem of who are going to be the successors in terms of China expertise to be able to deal with the challenge of China, who are going to be the successors that are going to be able to develop those very tight relationships that we need with our non-English speaking allies um, that so far we don't seem to prioritize. And even the culture of, of GAC doesn't, uh, you know, it, you can't make a good career in, in global affairs if you specialize in one language area. So, you know, there are a lot of things to think about and so far well, we're not thinking about them. As a, as someone that that wrote about um, military culture, my my sense is that we need to also change our larger uh, culture of how we approach a problem to to find better solutions. Thanks for tuning into this week's episode of Defense Deconstructed, part of the CGAI Podcast Network. If you like the show, please remember to rate us and leave a comment on your podcast app. And if you like our stuff, please feel free to check out our donation page at cgaai.ca/support. You can also find us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. The podcast is brought to you by our team in Ottawa. Thanks go to our producer, Charlotte Duval-Antoine, 
and Drew Phillips for providing our music. I'm Dave Perry, and thanks for listening to this episode of Defense Deconstructed.